0: Uh, the weekend and plenty from the day's radio this is playback daily i'm carol moran and here's what you might have missed
1: i was at the end of the fool's cat page with all the list of what they had done and they still had them and i said where are they and he said we have them here in the hospital on a shelf on a shelf
2: It's not just that Washington Post report which uh, reported on use of the N-word increasing by 500% in the first day after uh, Musk took over. It's Musk himself. Musk tweeted and then deleted a homophobic conspiracy theory about the husband of the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. If your housemate
3: starts dating somebody, you are now dating that person Mm. as well. Because there's only one couch.
0: And we'll start in the afternoon and a heartbreaking live line filled with stories of loss of babies and the retention of their organs unbeknownst to their parents. Yvonne was Joe's first caller.
4: Appropriately enough, on this day, which is the third anniversary of the death of Gay Bourne, the first call is from Yvonne Mahan. And uh, Yvonne begins by saying, uh, I was watching The Late Late Show. It all started on The Late Late Show as a sick tune used to say. Yvonne, good afternoon.
1: Hi, Joe. How are you?
4: Good, thanks. Tell us what was it. You were watching the Late Late Show. You were in the UK.
1: Yeah, back in uh, December
4: 1999.
1: Yeah. And um, uh, there was two women on talking about uh, their children's um, organs had been removed if mm-hmm. in um, Crumlin Hospital.
4: These are children who died and...
1: Yeah, they were okay. sick children that had okay.
4: died. Okay, okay. And when you were watching it, what did you think?
1: Well, when the programme ended, I just immediately said, my mother had been over visiting me in England at the mm-hmm. time, and I just said, I th- that's happened to me. That, I, I feel that, ha- that, ha- that definitely happened to me. I feel that happened to the twins.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And my mother said, no, no, they were sick children. You know, they're yeah. older children. And um, I said, no, 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 uh, that definitely happened. I, I know that happened to me. I just had a feeling. I can't describe it. I just had a feeling. And then I start ringing the hospital, um, the next day from the UK, I Again, rang.
4: But Yvonne, take us back to about your. Tell me about your twins.
1: Yeah, in um, 1985, I had two little girls, Jennifer and Marie. Um, they were born at 23 and a half weeks, so they were premature. Mm. Jennifer lived for 55 minutes, and Marie lived for six hours.
6: Okay.
1: Um, so um, that was we went through. That it was yeah. very hard. Yeah.
4: And did you, 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 the funeral, the remains, what Um, happened? It
1: was in, uh, at the time I was very young, I was only 20, and um, the hospital said that they they would bury the babies. So I didn't know anything about funerals or how you'd Mm -hmm. go about it, and I just said, oh yeah, you know, I thought. So the hospital, it was a hospital burial, so they buried them in um, Glasnevin, the the Holy Angels plot in Glasnevin.
4: And had you any hand actor part in this, this service?
1: No, no. And I didn't know at the time, Joe. Yeah, you were so young.
4: Yeah. hadn't a clue. <laughs> yeah. So the hospital said we looked after everything. Yeah,
1: yeah. And
4: they took the babies. The
1: babies, yeah,
4: yeah. Yeah. So now you're watching the Late Late Show, uh, women on are talking about the organs of their deceased children being removed without their permission. And but, but how, how did you, do you know, do you understand how you got that sensation
1: No, I always felt a connection with the hospital, like a draw to the hospital, you know, this connection. like call me mad or whatever, but I always felt a connection. And the minute I heard that, I just felt, I kept feeling... I felt we in the hospital. Okay. And I kept ringing the hospital every day from the UK.
7: Yeah. And
1: the first day I rang, the secretary, you know, whoever answered the phone said, the yeah. receptionist said, ah, um, oh, no, no, this is maternity hospital. This doesn't happen here. This is, you know, okay. they were sick children. And I'd ring every day. I wanted to be put through the, to the pathology department to speak to the pathologist. I just, I can't describe why I did this. I just kept doing it. And then one day, um... The reception said, oh, are you the lady that had the twins? And I sat down because I knew. I said, if they know me, they know. They know. They've you know, she oh. knew who I was so
4: there yeah. was something.
1: I had an idea it was something. So eventually... And up to, up when, to that, sorry,
4: Yvonne, were you been told when you rang? Were they saying to you, did you mention the late, late and did they say, oh, remember, the late, late was for children who were in Crumlin Hospital?
1: Yeah. They said they were in a maternity hospital and it didn't happen. She says, nothing like that happens here. You know, we're in okay. a maternity hospital.
4: Okay, so when you when you realised they knew you as the mother of the twins, why? What made you twig that there was something definitely going on here?
1: Um, just the fact she, she knew me and put me straight through then. Okay. Pathology, do you know so she knew well she probably knew me from ringing every day I just kept
4: you have great perseverance I know why they're your two babies I had um, a feeling
1: and my niece was born in um, Hollis Street okay. a few years earlier and like that when I was in the hospital I couldn't even walk up the stairs I felt this connection with the hospital that I can't describe and even going in to see Hannah I was like like this terrible feeling you know and I didn't know my children were in that hospital do you know what I mean yeah. when I was seeing I went in to see Hannah they were in the hospital down a corridor or it, you know, it just, I could feel something was wrong, wow. you know. I yeah. Mm.
4: So you got on, you, one the, the phone calls, your persistence phone call worked and you got on to the pathologist. What did the pathologist say?
1: Um, he said, oh, we may have some slides or we may have some tissue. I'll check. I'll ring you back tomorrow.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And then eventually when I spoke the next day, he said, are you, a, are you on your own? And I was, I was living in England and I was on my own. And I said, he obviously wanted to see whether I was with somebody because of what he was going to say.
5: Mm. And
1: I said, just tell me, just tell me. So I had a pen and at the time a fool's cap page. And as he spoke the words, I just wrote down because my head, you know, I had to sit down. I obviously felt weak and faint. And I started to write down what organ. I said, just tell me what you took. So they started to name. He started to name all the organs, and I wrote them down: heart, lungs, kidneys. You know, the list is endless. Names of uh, parts of your body that I didn't know you had: adrenal glands, pituitary glands, yeah. everything. Um, kidneys, liver, uh, womb, ovaries, fallopian tubes. And oh the babies God. were 11 ounces and a pound and two ounces. I don't know how they've even seen their, their ovaries. Yeah. Must have been so tiny. Skin, bone, everything. I was at the end of the Fool's cap page with all the list of what they had done and they still had them. And I said, where are they? And he said, we have them here in the hospital. On a shelf. On a shelf.
0: And Yvonne spoke about how she felt when she heard that news.
1: You absolutely could not possibly feel how I and other parents would feel until it happens. No one can have that feeling till it actually happens to them. The feeling of because it's so it's a feeling outside that you'd it's right. not natural feeling to feel so no one else could have this feel you know could feel this so your children are on this, so the first thing I said to him then was get the if there a priest or chaplain in the hospital yeah. please get them go and bless them just bless them because yeah. I had all feelings of you know first wasn't being blessed but after that the days after it was nightmares about um, not at peace, nothing, you know, mm. like the undead, or not, you know, that way, not gone mm. to rest, and and that horrible feeling of them not being complete. I said, "What did you bury?" And he, they said, "We buried their bodies. So literally, skin and bone they buried, but they had taken skin and bone as well. They had taken everything. They had." And I said, "What did you do with them? What, when you had them? Oh, well, we used to take them every now out every now and again." And we'll say, like, we wanted to examine a heart, and we'd take a piece out, and we'd, you know. I said, did you learn anything? No. Did it save any babies? No. Did it? I was trying to find any consolation mm-hmm. that for 15 years, this is what they were doing to my two children. 15 years. 15 years. It was 15 years later. But they had been through the years using the organs for whatever they wanted them for. So... Um,
4: and did he say... Yvonne, I'm I'm looking at them now.
1: No, he would have been in the Patel. They would have been just stored in a storeroom okay. somewhere. Do you know what I mean? In
4: glass jars or whatever.
1: No, no. Well, I don't know what way they okay. stored them. Yeah, I don't know what way. But
4: were the were the babies' names on them?
1: Twin one and twin two. They would have been called. My twins were Jennifer was and um, Marie. So um,
4: And how did they identify them as your twins, Jennifer and Marie? Did it, but, was there a date of birth on them? They or? have, yeah. They yeah, would twi- yeah. be okay. twins babies have to, of yeah. me, yeah, you yeah, know, that way. Like. Yeah.
1: Um, okay. So then I came home from England and the first but thing just, I wanted to see... The but how,
4: how did you manage that day? How did you...
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And you, yeah. yeah. Um. Emotionally, I got very, very sick. Very emotionally, um, yeah. like post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, terrible nightmares, insane nightmares.
0: And Yvonne spoke about going to see a psychiatrist at the hospital with her sister Fiona.
1: They sent me eventually, by the time the appointment for the psychiatrist came, it was three months later and when I went into the psychiatrist in the hospital, he said you were the one of the first, you were the f- I was one of the first and they actually didn't know what to do with me, but it seemed it was a natural reaction that parents wanted to see their babies but they didn't know that when they were dealing with me in the beginning, you know they oh. didn't, but you, he said you can see your babies, it's, um, you know, it's okay. Um we have them, they're down the corridor, and you can see them. So Fiona was with me, practically carrying me, because I would be so yeah. distraught. And they brought me to a little room, and they had a beautiful, like a, a little tiny healing room with armchairs and a candle, and there was a nun there, and it was really, really beautifully, just a table. And they had two... Uh, like plastic jars with twin one and twin two on the table, and it was all real nice and peaceful, nearly like a healing kind of it was relaxing. So in I went, and the minute I sat down, I opened the first jar, which was twin one, which would be Jennifer. Yeah. And it was like all the organs were um, in like a shrink, you know, shrink wrap yeah. bag. And they were actually the length, you know, rolled up, but when you opened it out, it was the length of the babies. Do you know what I mean? It was like it felt the weight of the babies, it felt like the whole uh-huh. baby and I put her into my um, arm and um, while I opened the other jar and I which would be Marie and I turned mm-hmm. to Fiona I had never held Jennifer when she died okay. I'd only held Marie and I said to Fiona this was her arm and I put her into the arm that was I had held Jennifer in my Marie in my left arm and I put her into my right arm that was her place do you know what I mean yeah. and I had so I had the two of my arms and in an insane place, it was lovely. The three of us were back okay. together. They were in my arms, and I could hold them. And I put to two of them to my face. The two, now they're both plastic bags, but I put the two yeah. of them to my cheeks. The two of them. The, I was actually rocking with them, and it was like the three of us were back together, and it was like lovely in an in, a, in an insane way. But like I was happy yeah. to be with them. Do you know what I mean? And then I was pointing out to Fiona. I said, Look, Fiona. I like proud of how healthy I look at the pointing out each organ, going, Look, Fiona, how healthy they are. Like I made all them. See you know the way you're proud of your baby. Yeah, look at you yeah. I was proud how healthy you they carried looked them. And, and yeah. also you yeah. know the way you say you love your children, no matter what they look like. Yeah. I know you love your children even without skin. You love your children. They were my children in my arms and you love them. You don't need, doesn't matter what they look like. Do you know what I mean? You still love them. So Fiona at times, this is like a healing. It was like, do you know, it was lovely to be not, I wouldn't like, you know, wouldn't recommend to go through this, but to be together with them was nice. And then I had, I placed them, I just placed them myself then in the coffin and you know, have time, as much time as I wanted with them, which was really...
4: And who else was um, in the room, Yvonne? Obviously the wonderful you, but the wonderful Fiona as well.
1: My sister, yeah, yeah. and um, I think there was probably a nun there. Yeah, I okay. think, I don't think anybody else was
4: there. And did a nun say anything?
1: No, I think she said prayers and things, and, you know, um, it was just... it was just nice. Do you know what it was? And your researcher said it this morning, the respect shown to the babies. And that's all it was about respect. That they, you know, just they were respectful towards them, and that meant so much to me. They're, you know what I mean? That being on a shelf or the way they've treated, you know, them up to now, it's the respect. You know that they were treated and respectfully. Did, and that's did Hollis,
4: does Hollis Street apologize?
1: No, no, no,
5: no.
4: Ever.
1: No they said they buried they helped bury the babies like they paid for the funeral and whatever and um they gave me counseling and said i could have counseling whenever i needed it and but no no they and they, they didn't apologize
0: and Yvonne's sister Fiona also spoke to Joe.
8: its I mean, it's the saddest thing. And, you know, she's very brave and she's very strong. I don't know if I could have gone through it. But just, she actually spoke there a minute ago about what I was going to say. We went to meet up in the hospital and there was the head of the pathology, I think, and a counsellor, as far as I know. And we were there for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And basically we were kind of, well, I know for me, I was kind of looking for an answer for her as to, why this happened, yeah. and what the result of it all was, what they achieved from this. So they kept going on about, you know, well, we did it for research. And I was saying, well, we're all for, you know, we're all for research, and that's how we learn, yeah. and that's yeah. how you know things happen. But I said, why did nobody ask her? Nobody asked yeah. her. Um, could they hang on to the orbit or whatever? They kept her placenta, as far as I know, as well. Um, and I know at one stage I said to him, he was listing all the things, and I said, and what actually did you bury, skin and bone? And he said, no, we left the eyes.
4: We left the eyes?
8: Yeah, but they took everything else, everything else. So then we went on, obviously I don't, it's not the sequence of events, I, don't, I don't really remember, but I said yeah. to him, well, you know, did you get a result from this? Yeah. What was the result? So as even said it, there, it was twin-to-twin transfusion. I said, okay, and Yvonne said, well, Fiona's had twins here. My daughter had just been born there as well. Mm -hmm. Now, mine were non-identical, so that wasn't going to happen to them, but it could be a history that we need to know. So, yes, there's research playing its its role, okay? So I said, well, when did you actually find out this result? So um, he said, oh, well, you know, we did a bit of this and we did a bit of... So eventually, I said, was it this year? Was it last year? Was it 15 years ago? Two weeks after they took everything, they had that result, and I said, well, "Why did anybody? Why didn't anybody Say tell it, her?" Yeah. It was really just awful. It was absolutely awful. And then we got them back, but they said they were on slides and they were on all sorts of things in the lab, and they used yeah. them. And I remember we got them back in those plastic bags, and then we laid them to rest
4: with the rest of them. Yeah. Just your your your. your human description of it is brought at home I think to so many people about the
8: it's barbaric
4: the yeah.
8: it really is barbaric like and they're doing this for research that's great why do you just not ask the person exactly. that you are taking it from I know somebody else they exactly. have their mother's brain you know what, they found that out And
4: what do they think I don't know what did they think of your sister Yvonne that they could simply take her two babies that she had given birth to, had carried and given birth to. And this is an... Uh, Yvonne, forgive me for this phrase. But they hollowed out the two babies. Yeah. For their own... They don't... They couldn't even offer a reason when, they were, when Yvonne's persistence and maternal instincts found them out.
8: Yeah. And they never told her till that day what they discovered from this research.
4: And they never so apologise for not asking. No. They never apologise for not telling.
8: Yeah. So, Joe, you asked me what they thought of her doing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. obviously, yeah. nothing. They didn't think anything of her or any of these victims. I said to him, "It's like Why? a violation. It's like a, a rape or something. You can't go back and fix yeah. this. It. It's done. You know, and it's." it's I mean I'm her sister I can only imagine it didn't happen to me and just the way I feel about it I just can't imagine how she deals with it Yeah. at all you know I think she's very brave yeah. to come on and talk about
4: it And Yvonne how do you deal with it obviously you, 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 you'll you remark um, Fiona and reference her but how how do you it, I presume you, you told me a few minutes ago there would have been what 37 so there's not a I presume there's not a day goes by, yes sir.
1: Not a day, Joe. They live with me. They live with me. And not in a morbid way, in a yeah. happy way. Yeah. Yeah. They're always with me. But I would cry still about them. You know, you still the feeling doesn't go away,
9: yeah.
1: you know, of the loss when they were born. And, and the organ retention then was worse than them actually dying in 1985. What I went through oh. in 2000 was worse. And they just stay with me all the time. You just, you live your life differently. You know, you live, yeah. You, you know, you could be sad, and but you just live it differently. And then they give me a strength, Joe. I really, I turn to them. And sometimes if, if I forget, my friend Yvonne will ring. Oh yeah, you know, the twins are looking after you. You know, you're going yeah. through something. Yeah. And I go, oh Yvonne. And she, she'll remind me, or something will happen that'll remind me. You know, a song will come on the radio and say like we're here. And, um, like when I went to have my I have two wonderful sons and uh, when I was having Andrew um, like that I believe they were with me and the same when I was having Elias you know they, yeah, I yeah. believe they're watching over the pair of them because you yeah, know the fact that yeah. the two of them they're my life my absolute life um, and I believe they you know that definitely they're looking after me as well I always feel that
0: Yvonne and Fiona speaking so eloquently on the live line with Joe Duffy in the afternoon. And if these stories bring unhappy memories for you, you can find support at rte.ie/slash helplines. And it's been a week filled with news of tech industry shifts from Revolut entering the mortgage market to Elon Musk's slashing of staff at Twitter. Journalist Adrian Weckler was talking to Philip your hayes in the morning. Adrian, Musk
10: paid an absolutely eye-watering sum for Twitter, so he has to increase revenue, he has to cut costs. How much of his workforce is he expected to fire?
2: Up to half. He, the news coming out of Twitter is that up to half of the 7,000 staff worldwide uh, will be let go. As you said, Twitter employs um, 500 odd in Dublin, and they have already started to be let go. The Irish employees in Dublin, have, has, so, they, they, so we're not morning, waiting until
10: four o'clock. That is actually ongoing now.
2: This morning, this morning, Twitter, some Twitter Irish staff are tweeting that they no longer work at Twitter.
10: And that's not just because all employees have been locked out of the premises and locked out of their laptops. These people have
2: actually been given the P45. They've they've been told that they no longer work at Twitter. It's quite an extraordinary process that's going on, a widely circulated and published memo from management to staff essentially told them that they'd be told they'd be informed today whether or not they had a job and not to turn up to work essentially they were locked out of their systems locked out of their uh, their work emails and some of them are waiting to see whether they've access to their work email or not to know whether they've been fired or not.
10: Yeah, one wonders how the act of communication would happen if you are frozen out of your email. Adrian, you have... Personal email. uh, Have you been inside uh, uh, Twitter in Dublin? You know uh, what it does. How many people can he actually let go and expect Twitter to still actually function?
2: That's... An incredibly pertinent uh, question, given the number of trust and safety staff that are being let go, that have been locked out of, of their systems. I mean, that that is the million dollar question for what Elon Musk says he wants to do with the platform, the new products he wants to introduce. Um, its pivotal importance in things like the US midterm elections for stopping disinformation and basic engineering tasks as well. Um, Musk clearly seems to feel that it's bloated, that it doesn't need anywhere like the number of staff that it has. Um, But, you know, others would take a very, very different view. And because he paid so much for this company, he bought it for more than twice that it was worth, tried to wriggle out of paying, you know, paying the bill for it, and now that he's on the hook for, you know, twenty billion dollars more than it's worth, you know, he's he's trying to to cut it to the bone to save money on his billion uh, dollars a year interest rates, but it's not clear that there won't be chaos in the coming weeks and months. He could literally break several systems within Twitter, and that has really, really important uh, ripples for public discourse and for democracy over the next weeks and months.
10: Because it has been noted by some, and I'm not sure with what authority or what credibility, but some people have pointed towards a 500% increase in the use of the N-word on Twitter (laughs) since Elon Musk took over and that content moderation seems to have gone out the window. Is there any substance to that? And if the Irish staff are affected in the areas that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. is likely that we're only going to see that get worse?
2: Yes and yes there is substance to that and it's not just that Washington Post report which uh, reported on use of the N-word increasing by 500% in the first day after uh, Musk took over it's Musk himself Musk tweeted and then deleted a homophobic conspiracy theory about the husband of the U.S. House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, who was the victim of a break-in in in their home. He tweeted and and then deleted a conspiracy theory uh, about uh, that person. That's the person who owns the company, who's literally tweeting out uh, misinformation. Um, So yes, there is a very, very grave fear that we're in for a really troubling time in terms of uh, what is an extraordinarily difficult task, for any social media platform or any publisher at any time to guard against okay. misinformation, disinformation. Can we
10: focus on the 500 jobs for a second? It seems very late stage capitalism, doesn't it? That the richest man in the world buys something as a bit of a plaything and then fires half the staff because he can't actually afford them. Uh, what reaction, what feeling have you heard from within Twitter?
2: Despair. Um, oddly, also relief at the same time, because while it has been a horrible period of weeks and months, uh, while they're watching this soap opera unfold publicly about Elon Musk's prolonged takeover of Twitter, they were dreading what was coming. And the last week in particular has just been awful. People have been going to work not knowing whether they still have a job. Others have been told that if they don't launch new products within a week or two, such as, for example, this infamous $8 per month charge to for for some users to keep their blue ticks, that they'd be fired. So some are saying that while this is their worst fear come true, it's also a relief for it to be over and they can just move on.
0: And Philip asked Adrian about Revolut's intentions to move into the Irish mortgage market.
2: Nick Staronsky and I sat down yeah, to talk uh, for, for my podcast and basically I, I ran through some of the big issues facing Revolut. Revolut's trying to become a super app. They have these apps in China where you can do anything. Um, it, it literally govern your day. And In the last few days, uh, Revolut has added messaging to its app. Now I asked, well, where does it end? Would he, for example, consider mortgages? And yes, he said Revolut is planning to look at mortgages, introducing mortgages. Um, I asked him what that might look like, uh, what, what it would be. And he said, well, it'd be one of two things. Either Revolut itself as a bank would offer the mortgage or it would act as an intermediary. But either way, he said, the aim here was to do to the mortgage market what Revolut has done to money transfers and other areas of banking, to bring an instantaneous, automated, um, user interface-friendly version of it, so that even if you don't get your mortgage immediately, um, right there in the app, you will get a response immediately. You won't be waiting days or weeks for an update on where the process is.
0: Adrian Weckler from Today with Philip Adger-Hayes. And on the Ryan Tubridy show, Irish actress Elaine Cassidy and her daughter Keela Lord Cassidy are starring in the film The Wonder. So, Ryan asked 13 year old Keela about coping with all the attention since the film's release.
5: So, honestly, when I first got the taping for The Wonder, I didn't know how big this was going to be. Like, I knew I was going to be working with amazing stars and professionals at what they did, but I only actually realised how crazy this all became when I went to the San Sebastian Film Festival and that's when I was really taken aback with how many people responded to the film and how many people actually liked it and, Mm. I don't know, it really touched me and I'm so happy that everyone is enjoying this creation that everyone helped make.
6: How how old were you when you filmed it?
5: I was 11.
6: Okay, Uh, and now...?
1: Uh, I'm 13. Just okay.
6: heard. Just a congratulations. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um,
6: and your mum is Elaine Cassidy. Elaine, lovely to talk to you, and um, thanks for joining us also this morning. Because we've, you know, we've talked about different films um, and things you've been in, uh, from whether it's Disco Pigs back in the, 2001 and the others, which of course I loved, and uh, Acceptable Risk and RTE and and so many other bits and pieces along the way. But the wonder, why don't you give our friends who haven't seen it, which is most people listening this morning. Give us a snapshot of the film, uh, what it's about, and we can get stuck in then.
11: OK, so it's said in the Midlands in Ireland, just post-famine, um, there's still a very strong shadow of the famine in all these people's lives. I mean, in, in some ways, we're still feeling the effects of the famine, I think, in our DNA. And there's this uh, young girl who has said that she hasn't eaten for four months, that she's living on manna from heaven. And uh, some people believe, and she's hailed as this miracle child. And there's a lot of sceptics as well. So they want to get to the truth of the matter. So they stage this watch, and they have it, it's, uh, They have two people watching this young girl, which is a nun, Sister Michael, and a nurse, which is Florence Pugh's character, Lib Rice. So she comes over from England, and they they do shifts on watching this girl. They're not allowed to intervene but they want to get to the truth of is she a miracle or is is she a really good actress. So that's the premise of it it's, and then over the course of it it's um you know humans interacting um you can't help but uh, develop feelings and so yeah there's a lot of themes in 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 this in the film but that's that's the setup
6: yeah. of it. Oh well well set up because I, I I've seen it. I loved it and and you, it, the way you're describing it is it, it, it so many films to me uh, can can lack a really good plot. This is such a good plot. it's so interesting. and I know it's based on Emma Donnihu's book, but it it I was just engrossed from the beginning. I hadn't I wasn't aware of this phenomenon of the of the fact that the character Keela plays is uh, a wonder, the wonder. and it, it, was this all part of the fasting women phenomenon? It, can we talk a bit about that?
11: Well, Emma has said that in the research that she did or the stories that she had read, there were these cases dotted all over the world throughout time. And, you know, it's this maybe ideology of uh, a girl that is pure, that doesn't need food in order to survive, I guess, like the, like Virgin Mary, you know. And um, it's, you know, like she, she has discovered, it wasn't just exclusive to Ireland. Yeah. Uh, but I guess it also then taps into, I guess, our I mean, it, it, she said it in such an interesting time, which is during the famine. Yes. When for lots of people, it wasn't a choice about, oh, do I not eat or do I eat? There wasn't the food to eat. So I think that's a really interesting backdrop. And then there's kind of I'm I'm guess like that is one of the many themes in the film. You can even bring it into today's world and um, certain people's relationship with with food. There's disorders with it, and um, it just it, like it just uh, creates really interesting conversations. Um that yeah, I mean you, you could talk about it for hours. No, and hours you could. And I'm, I'm, I'm,
6: even the expression that was used, I think, around the time of. Uh, Saint Catherine of Siena, that's 14th century, was anorexia mirabilis, You know, the, the, this miraculous anorexia, it, it, yeah, as an expression, and th- that's why th- that's where the film comes in. How is this young person played by Keira? Um, how is she surviving? How can she be living? And Florence Pugh plays the nurse who comes in, watching, watching, watching. You're the mother who's kind of in, in it to all intents and purposes, figuratively and uh, metaphorically, you are in the shadows, watching. Because it's a it's a dark film,
0: and Ryan spoke about the echoes of famine in the Irish psyche.
6: This is a country yeah. who's that's still in in the trauma of it. But you know, I was talking to Moncan McCann here the other day about it. I'm fascinated by the famine. I think it's still a conversation that our generation, if you don't mind me bringing you into that age group for a moment, um, haven't yeah. haven't really got a grip on and that 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 yes it was commemorated here and there but you said something really interesting there as well which was you know it's in our dna now psychologists talk about intergenerational trauma um, this is it's i think it's a very real concern still
11: Well, yeah it takes i like i mean i don't know do they know the magic number as to how many generations it takes for trauma to be eradicated I mean, I know we can all help ourselves by maybe seeking professional help if, if we've been through a trauma ourselves. But yeah, the traces are there. And yeah, it, it's in all of us. So after, similarly to you, I find it a really fascinating yeah. subject matter because there's not masses of, um, well, there's not been many films made about it. So maybe it's taken us this long yes. to, to address it. And, yeah. and there's enough distance that it feels safe enough so um I mean that is a huge character in, in the film and a huge theme as well. Yeah. So I mean Emma's just incredible how she interweaves all these all these details that just make it such a rich tapestry.
6: Well, I think that's what I loved about looking at it was as you say, not not much you don't see much of the famine on the on the screen, big screen or small screen in the movies particularly. Um and yeah. you're right, this was like another character. It it it's it, it, a lot of heather. A lot of brown. It's very Irish, very ominous, very uh, darkly beautiful. Would that be fair to say?
11: Oh, I think so. There's such. I mean, there's beauty everywhere. It just depends what your perspective is. And at the heart of this film, like I think it, it's a love story. It's there is so much beauty in it, and you know, it starts off with you know we we are nothing without stories, and I think you know the Irish, especially, were known. Of being brilliant storytellers and it's a coping mechanism isn't it it's um i guess it's maybe a form of therapy on how to get through uh, certain uh, experiences that um we don't quite know how to process
6: for sure and and let me ask you Keila, as, as as your your dad is is an actor as well stephen lord and and your mum is is an actor elaine who we're talking to here as well um so you have kind of english and irish blood Would that is is that, is that right
5: um well, I guess so. So like, <laughs> being able to have, though, two parents who act, I feel like that's kind of what brought me into the industry because having both of them who act, I mean, it's kind of in my blood. Yes. And I've always loved stories. So, I mean, knowing that I could be a storyteller as a career, it kind of changed my view on things because I, I would have always loved to become a surgeon or a vet but then realizing that I could become an actress it was kind of like almost life-changing even at the age of nine years old yeah (laughs) it was like this is what I want to do and being able to have both parents who do that it kind of made it easier for me and made it just so much more comfortable and not forced in any way
6: When you were over filming in Ireland, um, did you get a a lovely sense of the place? I mean, in terms of the history of the story that you were um, playing out and telling as an actress and just spending time in what arguably is half your home country?
5: Well, I've I've always loved Ireland because it's where my family is. I mean... uh, I I just always have fond memories because we would always come over on the summer holidays and at Christmas and say hi to all my cousins and my aunties and my grandparents and all of my family in Ireland. They're all my best friends. So especially during COVID, where it wasn't really an option to be able to see them, getting the job, uh, such a, a big job as well, and having it set in Ireland and being able to see my family was almost perfect. It was as though the stars had aligned at the right moment. Mm. And also being able to film up in the the heathers and the heather beds and the beautiful scenery that was in Ireland, it really helped bring me into the story instead of having to imagine anything because there was no imagination needed because everything was there. Mm. It was as though everything was thought of and everything was coming together perfectly like a jigsaw puzzle and there was nothing that i was worried about and i wasn't nervous in any way so being able to film in ireland was a plus but having everything fit so perfectly together was like it it was just it's almost unheard of in this industry
6: (laughs) it was cosmic it was all meant to be
0: yeah and ryan asked elaine about an incident that happened in her young acting career
6: Elaine, you, when you when when I'm listening to your to Keely to your daughter speaking there, she seems wise beyond her years, but um, <laughs> I'm, I, which is a credit to herself, obviously, but also to to the, the, the folks. Um, when you were about what 20 years ago, you were, would have been about 22. You were in Berlin promoting Disco Pigs, and um, a, a guy came over to you and said something really peculiar.
5: <laughs> and
6: you know, as I'm talking to your 13 year old daughter now. Tell us what he said to you and maybe reflect on that for a moment.
11: Yeah, so um, he said that I would never work past the age of 30. And yeah, I I think I was like 20, 21 at the time. And so that wasn't enough time, like just still having nine years left of my career. Uh, and I challenged him and I disagreed with him and he was adamant. And thankfully, I was. The, the strong-minded person that I am, and was like, right, well, I'm not taking that on. It, it did chink me for a second, mm-hmm. thinking, oh, is he right? But, you know, I think, oh God, in some ways, time is a funny old thing, isn't it? Sometimes it feels like yesterday, and sometimes it feels like a lifetime ago. And um, it was a different time. I mean, I think actresses were, like, get to the age of 40 back then, and then you were kind of done. Uh, but, you know, it, I, I think like the life of Nicole Kidman, you know, it, she yeah. really paved the way. And Meryl Streep, you know, got this endless people. And um, we're allowed, we're like get a bit older now. So there was definitely an ageist, um, you know, it, it was ageist towards women, especially. But we're in a different time. I, we're in a really exciting time. I think we can go even further more change can happen. I think, you know, individuality is really being celebrated that you don't, there's less pressure to conform. Mm. And um, so, yeah, I don't think that comment will ever be said to Keela, thankfully. And even if they did say it, she would bat it away as quickly as I did, if not quicker, I'm sure.
6: Yeah, <laughs> it is remarkable though to think, I mean, that's 20 years ago and in, in what's happened in the last, I think you'd have to say five years, not not 10 years uh, in terms of trying to change the movie business and attitudes uh, on screen and off. Quite a fight. Quite a lot of a lot of fight for uh, women in particular to try and get to where it's getting to. Now, I don't know if it's there or not because I'm not in the middle of it all, but uh, it, do you feel it's def- it's moving in the right direction in that regard?
11: Yeah, I do. I have a confidence like I will be able to work until the day I choose not to unless that's naive of me. But, you know, it's I don't know if TV has played a part in that. Mm. I mean, there's just endless content being produced, which is great. So it, it feels really, really positive. I think at one point the pendulum had swung so far the other way. I was like, oh, my God, are there any roles for men at the moment? <laughs> uh, which, you know, wasn't my concern. I was happy. <laughs> so, you um, know, it feels like at the moment, look, you know, I'm still young so, you know, talk to me in another 20 years and hopefully I'm still saying the same thing going, yeah, no, there's work out there, uh, regardless of what your age is. And I, it, we're just looking for in, uh, the whole, like, universally equality for everyone, inclusivity. And um, and it's definitely there's a big push towards that. So hopefully one day we won't be talking about it because it yeah. will just be the status quo.
0: Elaine Cassidy and Keela Lord Cassidy on The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on today with Philip Boucher Hayes, Generation Rent's worst nightmare, Housemates, with journalist Jade Hayden and DJ Thomas Cross or Crossy.
10: Uh, Crossy, are any of your former Housemates Radio 1 listeners, do you think, or can you dish the dirt with gay abandon?
3: I was thinking about this actually earlier on. I was like, what can I say? Look, I think I can say enough, actually, that will mean that I won't name the people. But it's tough out there. It's now turned into a dating app because when you're going looking for somebody now to move into your house because you can't afford a house, you have to kind of look at everything about it. It's not just someone moving into your room. It's somebody that you're going to have to live with. You're going to have to experience birthdays with disappointments, joyous occasions because they're in the comfort of your own home. And it's scary out there. It's like dating somebody Well I was just going to say it is as
10: close to a spouse without actually exchanging vows as you can get isn't it?
3: And it can be awful. There's been There's probably so many people listening right now that can name at least two bad housemates that they've had over the last few years The
10: problem is I started thinking about my housemate horror stories before I came in and said is the reason that I don't have any because I was the horrific housemate (laughs) It probably was the case Jade, how many stories have you got?
9: Oh, so many. And like Philip, I really hope that they don't listen to Radio 1 because I don't really know how vague I can be about them. But there is, there's such a desperation, especially now when you're living in Ireland. You want to find somewhere who's the perfect, ideal housemate. But g- given the current situation, you're kind of just looking around for one. You're like, I'll take anyone at this point. Like you can do all the research in the world. But at the end of the day, you're moving in with strangers a lot of the time. And you really don't know someone until you're living with them.
10: What was, without naming names, what was the incident, Jade, that brought you closest to throttling somebody?
9: Oh, God. I mean, there's been a couple, but um, I used to live in this house that had, I suppose, the thinnest walls known to man, like they might as well have been cardboard. And a person I was living with at the time, would just constantly bringing people into the house, like men, women, friends, whoever. And they would have the loudest conversations at 2 a.m. on a Sunday night before work. And I would text this person and I would kind of say, hi, can you please keep it down? You know, like I have work in the morning and I would just be fully ignored in the chat to the point where eventually this person moved out and it was fine. But there was another time and one of their person's friends and I can only presume that they were extremely drunk but they barged into my bedroom in the middle of the night and I was terrified. I thought we were being broken into or haunted or something. And then they just stumbled down the hallway never to be seen again and I was just <laughs> kind of sitting there being like this, this isn't like a student accommodation situation, like we're all adults, why is this happening in this house that I'm paying a yeah, lot of money to rent in?
10: Because you had people like me who were always quite happy to bring the party home to the house at <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. or two <laughs>
3: o'clock in the morning. Yeah I did, yeah. I had a housemate before who used to rob my drink all the time now I am the most generous person ever if you would like a glass of something please just all you have to do is text say can I have this then replace it I remember I had a party I don't think I've ever had parties before in the house and I remember one might have a load of people over and I poured them all a certain drink and they were like that's water And I was like, how is that water? Like, I was given that as a gift. And it turns out for years. Were were we housemates? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is your life right now, Philip. I need this amount of money. But yeah, it's so sad because you want to be able to go home. And I think the other problem is as well, Jade, if you found it as well, that if your housemate starts dating somebody, you are now dating that person Mm. as well. Because there's only one couch. There's a bedroom. There's noise. There's them eating your food. Them having date nights. And then you're the spare wheel in there going oh hi I'm single how are you and it's not nice and Jade knows what it's like to share a house with couples
9: I'm consistently living with couples I don't know what's wrong with me I keep ending up in these situations but I've lived with two couples who have lived in the house before I've moved in but there's also been situations where people have just kind of started bringing their partners over and suddenly you are living in the house with them. Like there was one time I was living in a house with four people and one of the guys like absolutely lovely guy got on with him so well, but suddenly it was like his partner was in the house all of the time and they were on the couch and they were watching TV and he wasn't paying rent and he wasn't paying bills. And there was a time limit on it. He was going to be leaving by the end of the month. But Publi- it was never public displays of affection at,
10: at eight o'clock a, in the a morning lot of as that, well. Yeah, a Ugh. lot of that.
9: You, do, you just feel like you're encroaching on people's space all the time as well. You know, that you come in, they're set up, and you feel like you can't join because you don't know if they're having a movie night or are they just chilling out. Or if it's just one other person in the room, you, you do feel far more comfortable kind of joining them. You're on a level playing field. But I mean, couples, I've done my fair share of them now, and I'll never go back again.
3: Crossy, tell me about the bank manager that gave you relationship advice. Oh, so a couple of years ago, I got so upset and so annoyed that I kept coming to that situation of needing a housemate so I went to a bank manager sat down and he said have you ever thought about dating anybody and I went why and he's was like well if you want to go for a mortgage on your wage you need to have two people to go and I was like even my bank manager was looking at me as Bridget Jones and I felt really annoyed about it because I don't mind renting for the rest of my life like I'm totally happy renting but it's just that point when you go to meet someone I had a fella before who used to walk around in the nip and then he used to eat his food and like he'd just say wear shorts and no top and he'd have his feet on the table where the coffee table we'd have our popcorn on or you'd have your glass of wine on and I was going get out of this house like why are you but again he was treating it like his own home Mortgages and loans counter one eligible (laughs)
10: bachelors counter two did did you ever consider compromising your marital status uh, Jade in order to put your on a more uh,
9: secure footing. I've considered it, but I mean, it hasn't been happening for me so far. So I'm not going to rely on that. But it is is—it is difficult as a single person, you know, especially when you have this like revolving door of housemates. And a lot of the time, people leave because they're moving in with a partner or they're buying a house. And like, it is hard to not look inward and think, okay, well, why am I dying in that period of my life? Why am I still living with people I don't know? Because right now, it's absolutely fine for me. I'm thankfully living with a housemate who I get along great with. But in like, you know, five or 10 years' time, am I still going to be happy in this, that situation? I might want to buy yeah. or I might want to live alone, but I don't even know will have the means for
10: that okay. I mean I know I'm being glib and a little bit facetious about all of this but the point at which it must really start to get in on you is that home isn't your sanctuary when you are sharing it with people who you just don't know what they're going to be inviting or bringing into the house at any point do you Jade?
9: You really don't I mean you kind of feel like you're just encroaching on people's space all the time you know and like if, if you move in with someone who's been there for years, they have their furniture, they have their crockery, they have their way of doing things, and suddenly you're there and you're trying to claim that space of your own, so you're just not hiding out in your room all the time. But I've absolutely been in situations where I've been like, I just don't feel comfortable in this house. Like the last kind of couple I lived with, it was during lockdown, and obviously tensions are high, but they were just kind of fighting consistently all the time. And I really felt like oh. I was a kid living with my parents again. i kind of be creeping up the stairs being like, what are they bickering about now? And I had a moment where I was like, hang on, I'm paying a lot of money to live here and I'm hiding out my bedroom for the guts of three months at that point because it was the myths of lockdown. And it just, it becomes really, really difficult to feel comfortable in your own space when that's the situation.
10: Crossy, can your home be a home if there's a housemate in it?
3: I don't think so. I don't think so. And there's a new issue that has only happened two years ago. WFH, working from home. You now have somebody who wants to work there and live there. I remember at one stage I was living with someone, It's was like living in a bank you couldn't come out because I was working 9 to 5 and like I finished work at 12 o'clock every day and you couldn't watch Countdown or whatever because you were afraid that you were encroaching on their work and their job and you don't want to do that and you're going hang on a second this isn't a bank this is a house I should be living here and that's a massive issue I think people are having as well now
0: Thomas Cross and Jade Hayden from Today with Philip Belcher Hayes And on The Ryan Tuberty Show, the rekindling of our romance with older technology like vinyl. Photographer Eric Luke was talking about the magic of film with Ryan.
6: We were talking about the return of vinyl yesterday and how it's making this big comeback. It's taking up lots of space in all the record shops you might go into as they used to have prominent position back in the day. But you, to a lot of people, will be well known, and, and I, I, I know your name, of course, as a byline on some of the great photographs, in de- for decades. Um, you were the Irish, the, the photographer for some some newspapers. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself before we get?
12: Yeah, well, I was photographer, staff photographer at the Irish Times for twenty seven years, and staff photographer before that with the the Press Group, which would be people who might remember the Evening Press, Sunday Press, yes. Irish Press. I left that. Uh, group and joined the Times. I left it about 10 years before it closed down. Um, so about 44 or 45 years in total, staff photographer. But I left the business about five years ago and um, I'm just shooting my own work I like. But in the context of vinyl, yes. I'm shooting almost everything on film now as opposed to digital.
6: And that's why you got in touch, just to, to, to kind of let us know that film is, is, it has that lovely retro feel to it in the way that vinyl has for people who are interested in photography.
12: Indeed, and there's a massive resurgence in the use of film. If you look around, you see particularly young people around with film cameras, and they're all picking up second-hand film cameras and buying a roll of film. And It's slow, it's tactile, it's a bit like the difference between reading on a book on a Kindle as opposed to a book you took down off a shelf. Um, it's like vinyl as well. It has, it, ha- it has its pluses and minuses. Both are important. Digital is, will not go away. Uh, but nor will film go away. I will shoot a little bit of digital, but I'm shooting nearly everything on film now, on manual cameras.
6: You, you, some people, and I'd be kind of among them, we just mentioned Eliphas Gerald earlier you on. Know, at a certain time of the night, uh, when you lower the needle into the groove of an Eliphas Gerald vinyl album, um, it just feels more earthy and deep and beautiful rather than Bluetooth off your phone into your speaker. Am I making that up, I wonder? Or no. is it true?
12: No, It's true because you think of the whole process of actually taking an album out of its sleeve, yeah, yeah. putting it on a turntable, You know, deciding on the track as opposed to picking a number. You know, and again, with film, the mm. idea of loading a camera, making the settings, using manual focus, manual shutter speed, imagining what the picture is, then executing it, and then waiting to process the film as opposed to the immediate instant gratification of looking at the back of the camera and getting the digital image. I actually love looking at negatives. And it's just a tactile thing, like reading a book.
6: Yes, I think that's that's part of it. it. It is if you take the phone out to take the picture of the thing or the person, and you just take maybe five or six, just in case you get, don't get it right. But like you say, if you set up the photograph, you also know film is expensive, so you're going to respect the photograph you're going to take and don't waste it. And then you've got the ceremony, don't you, of getting it uh, processed and the, the the weight, and then that lovely, you know, wallet of photographs, maybe twenty four. Um, and, and distilled rather than 255 from that night.
12: Indeed, and because a roll of film maximum it holds would be 36 frames, you know, you're very careful with what you shoot. As you said, if you're doing a portrait of somebody or a member of the family or the sort of thing I'd be doing would be people maybe on the islands or some of the projects I work on in the west of Ireland, I'd take my time, I shoot very carefully, I might shoot three frames on a person. But when shooting digital, I found I would shoot maybe 150 frames of the mm. person. Mm. Um, it's just, it's just a, different, um, a different discipline. But what interests me is the fact that uh, young people, even my own kids now, all have, they all have turntables. They all uh, love to, me to buy them a book. But they also stream everything. And they actually now have film cameras and they shoot yes. the odd roll of film. I think that we thought that when Kindle and those things came out, nobody would ever buy a book again. We thought that nobody would ever buy a record again. I think that they're all finding their slot and it might not be 50-50 it might be 80-20% or whatever but film has actually come back again and they, they can't make it fast enough it's flying off the
10: shelves Yeah, apparently.
6: that's fascinating Does Eric think the development costs for are very prohibitive for, for, for roles of film? Somebody wants to know what do you think about that? Well,
12: oh. All the costs are expensive when you compare it to digital because digital is just like a recording and then you can rub it out and start again, which you can't do with with, with film. But equally, you can lose a digital image quite easily, whereas film, you're unlikely to lose the negative.
0: Eric Luke from The Ryan Show. And if you're thinking about heading out into the garden this weekend as the cold weather begins to bite, Dermot Gavin and Mary Staunton were with Philip Adger Hayes in the morning to share some tips.
10: Very, very mild temperatures. I don't think I should be asking you winter gardening questions so no. much as an extended autumn type gardening questions.
7: But things are just on the turn now, perhaps? Well, we were talking about that just about two minutes ago when we were saying... We have things flowering that have no business flowering now, like uh, Mexican orange blossom, which is uh, beautiful evergreen leaves and a kind of a white flower, beautifully scented kind of orange scent of it. And it's not meant to flower till May.
13: And it's, in, it's, it's what? It's, it's in not just flowering, flowering in full blossom. I hmm. was up at, you know, the Evoca place in Yeah, I was there this morning. I saw the shrub hmm. covered in white flowers. Absolutely mm. covered. And that is weird. And you were saying birds lay Bird, eggs, uh, laying
7: eggs. laying eggs, rhododendrons flowering that have no business flowering now. What, what, what ends up happening to those plants
10: in
13: May?
7: So, in well, they be... Nature has they the they most be, incredible yeah. way
13: of putting itself
10: right. Now, mm. that particular show won't, but that Sorry, is, this is assuming that the weather is more normal in spring, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah. We might end up having a very, very yeah. cold January, we February, could. March. But if, if it was mild
13: enough, the plants would hit their normal cycle again? Maybe not the particular ones we've seen. No. They won't have time to produce new flowers, but in time they will get back to it. Yeah.
7: If if the if the weather continues the way it's been, I mean it's to get temperatures like this in November. Yeah. Um. I mean, I remember working in the Botanic Gardens in October twentieth one year, and it was twenty degrees. So it's not unusual, but the, it's the the length of time that it's been very mild. And the certainly. pattern
13: that's emerging. You, mm. uh, every, everything is changing. There's hmm. there's no doubt about it. Now maybe that's always always happened, but we're educated and we know a lot of that is true. Man-made climate change. So that's scary. And the type of rain we get is more kind of tropical or subtropical. When it comes, it floods.
7: It certainly does.
5: Absolutely.
10: Mm. Mad increase in levels. 17th consecutive um, month in which the average temperature has gone up as well, apparently. Mm. But let us make the assumption that on the basis of the fact that I was frozen at half past five this morning, (laughs) which is the first time that that has happened, that the weather has actually turned
13: What should we be doing now? Dividing plants? Yes.
7: Yes, definitely dividing plants shouldn't we? Yeah,
13: herbaceous plants that have died down First of all hopefully you've taken pictures of what the herbaceous border or your mixed border looked like so you know what's there because once the foliage disappears It's
7: very hard It's very hard you're <laughs> just left low. with
13: a root mm. and you've taken away you should be taking away the foliage and hopefully composting it uh, and you know marking what you have labelling what you have but a lot of herbaceous plants will kind of over time wear out and you You'll find in some of them they form a kind of donut. The centre dies out. Hmm. So at this time of the year, it's a great time to split them up. And when you split them up and replant them, you first of all get multiple plants that you can either keep yourself, yep. spread through the garden, but the, the, the increased vigour from those smaller plants will just reinvent well, the plant. It's
0: German Gavin and Maurice Daunton from Today with Philip your Hayes. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself till next time.